Hello and welcome to the Grace Point Henderson podcast. My name is Parker and I serve as a lead pastor at Grace Point Church in Henderson, Kentucky. This is a continuation of our series through the book of 1 Peter, Living Hope, and an exposition of chapter number 2, verses 13 through 17. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Grace Point Henderson podcast. turn them to uh, the book of First Peter, uh, chapter number 2. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. Um, we're going to continue in our series uh, through the book of First Peter, a series called Living Hope. And last week, uh, we went through verses um, 11 and 12, and namely looked and said, be careful, Christian, and the reason we need to be careful is because the world is watching. And we drew some application implication from this text. We said that, number one, uh, we are to abstain as sojourners and exiles. In other words, Peter hadn't forgot what he had called in uh, these Christians as namely um, chosen and called. He, it is precisely because of their redemptive nature that they have now a responsibility. Peter didn't forget about this. He knew about it. And he says, because of this, you are to abstain now as sojourners and exiles. We camped out on this idea of Christian distinctiveness and the importance of that, of living in this world but not being of this world. We camped out, point number two, we said to live with honor for honor, and this whole section now begins this subject of, of honor and, and what honor looks like. And we pointed namely to the prime example of the person who gave and bestowed honor, and that was the person of Jesus Christ, and all gave glory uh, to his heavenly father. We said that the word kalos, uh, the, the Greek word used there for honor or good means to be fertile or rich or to be beautiful. It goes beyond uh, ethnic or moralism. Uh, it goes into an aesthetic beauty and that we are to live lives that are to be compelling and loving and lovely to a watching world and to give glory to God. We are to live, as we said, to be otherworldly and not living for this world, namely, but for a world that is to come and give glory uh, to Christ, honor him, and in turn give glory to our Heavenly Father as well. And so now we turn in this subject of honor and move into 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Um, this is a tough text uh, because of the political climate uh, that we are currently find ourselves in, and we'll talk about that just a little bit. Um, but if you know me, I tend to be uh, one of a, a proclaimer of the gospel uh, that sin tends to be apolitical. Uh, and just try to n nuance between uh, the text, um, I am finding that that is becoming increasingly and more increasingly difficult. Um, and so I will attempt to do that uh, this morning as well, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we move on. Uh, but First Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, this is what the word of the Lord says. It says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. God, that as we walk through and navigate, God, just a difficult subject, a topic um, that we find ourselves in, even living in today, dealing and wrestling with these tensions unexpectedly, maybe we had never thought that we would be. But Father, even in the midst of that, may we see Jesus above all. May we come to this text and expect to find him there. And may we expect to find food for our souls, the living bread of Christ. Father, may you make a way. And by your spirit, would you help us to receive your word and to hear it and receive it, but also to live and obey your word in all of our lives. And we'll thank you for it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, certainly within a text like this, there are a lot of rabbit trails uh, that we can begin to go down. Uh, we can be tempted to track, trace, down, trace down some rabbits and hopefully uh, discover something. We could also, if we're not careful, 
uh, we could eisegete this text rather than exegete this text. And I know that might be a foreign term to you, but eisegesis would mean I am bringing my own interpretation and implications upon this text versus exegesis, which is our goal every single week, is to come to the text and glean insights from it. And so I don't want to eisegete this text and allow the circumstances and things that we are navigating within our day to influence or sway the author's or Peter's meaning uh, within this text, but I want to glean from this text and I want to learn and see how we can apply it to our lives. I think if there's any time um, to allow for a Western or patriotic eyes to bend and manipulate a text, it's certainly now and maybe even within uh, this text. And I pray that God would help us to be faithful to this text and faithful to his word and faithful to his son above all. And I know that I will not cover everything within this passage and and also know that there is a vast separation between the political and hierarchical uh, context in which Peter was writing in versus our world today. And I say that as a way of highlighting, I would say that we have an even greater responsibility uh, within our culture and within our society today to even engage in political conversations. And I I say that recognizing that our constitution even allows for that, even commends that. We have a country that is written and governed, the laws are written and governed by the people of the society. And we have said that God has given us certain unalienable rights and that we have that of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so we have, I believe, a responsibility as people in a free society to engage politically, but those are also in power uh, in our society. They are not there because they were merely born in that position, but instead because we the people have elected them to those office. And I also want to remind us that we also have the power and responsibility to remove people from offices as well. And it's a system that is governed now more than any by dollars and votes. And I think we could begin being guilty of reading something like that into this text. And so I bring that out, I think, as a responsibility to do good. I think I could make an argument from that, that there is a part of us being good citizens and doing good, as this text would imply, that bears our responsibility that says there is accountability within those offices that hold power within our country. And to say, if you do the right thing, we hear you and we applaud you. But if you do the wrong thing, we take notice and there will be consequences for that as well. Namely, that they could be voted out or we could rise up, vote, and just continue to exercise our right as free people. So I encourage you to engage politically as Christians in a political environment and season, but do so not clinging to this world, but clinging to Christ. I say that we have a responsibility in that end, that we vote, we engage, we write, we hold people accountable, right? To say, I want you to know that I'm behind you in this, and I also want you to know that I didn't expect this in giving you my vote or not giving you my vote. All that to say, And what I'm about to say does not necessarily contradict that necessarily. But it is walking a tightrope. It is walking very finely. And attempting to communicate that um, is all the more challenging. You should stand where I'm standing right now. (laughs) But we do have a responsibility, yet when you see what Peter writes here, The implications are very clear. The text is saying something that's very clear. Be subject. Submit to every human institution. Literally to every creation or person. And the word submit, the word subject there, means just that. It means to submit. We have a responsibility to do what this text is asking of us, namely to submit. As hard as it may be, as difficult as it may be, we should submit so much as when the reason, yes, of course, there is a time as we will continue to see 
And I even made reference a couple of months ago, and I said, I don't even think we're close to the point of seeing civil disobedience of being an avenue uh, for Christians in this society. The narrative continues to unfold and unpack, and I think we are getting closer and closer and closer to that in our society. But our default posture, Christian, should, be, should not be that one of rebelling, should not be one of resisting. But Peter says it's very clear, you are to submit. And there are instances when we cannot submit. In short, those are when we are forced to ask, to disobey our Lord and his commands. But Peter never implies or assumes integrity within the office of emperor or governor. But nonetheless, he still calls Christians to respond in such a way to them that is honoring to them. He says, your posture shouldn't be that of resisting. It shouldn't be that of rebelling. It should be that of honoring those people because of their position and because of their authority. Peter also is naturally, he is not, he naturally knows that any corrupt government that doesn't do what is right will not ultimately last. They will also give an account unto the Lord because the Lord has established it in that way. Doing what is harmful or threatening to the people that they entrusted to serve, that will not last in any society. History will prove to us that. But Peter says, that's not your concern, Christian. Your concern is your response to them. Your concern is your submission and your being subject to them. And Peter gives us a command here is to submit. And I think Peter gives us three primary reasons within this text, and I want to bring that out, of why we should honor or submit those in, to those in authority. And I'll give them to you real quickly, and we're only going to cover two this morning, and I'll explain that why. But number one, you should submit for the Lord's sake. That's verses 13 and 14. Number two, you should submit for the Lord's will, for this is the Lord's will. That's verses 15. And then what we'll cover next week is because you are free, verses 16 and 17. I'm going to unpack the first two this morning, and then next week I'm going to spend my entire focus on that last one because it is um, interesting, the statement that Peter makes there in verse 16 and 17. But number one, we should submit for the Lord's sake. If you look at verse 13 and 14, it says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Notice the train of thought that Peter has here. He says that we are to submit, there's the command that he gives us, to every human institution. That is literally, as I've said before, every creature. Catesis is the word that is there, but whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors that are sent by him, and who the him is there, it's a little discrepancy. We'll talk about that as well. But all of this is for the Lord's sake. And the verbiage that is used there is the verb to submit. Some will argue that it means more along the lines of, well, we should honor or just respect them. But the Greek word that is used there, it means to willfully submit to the orders and commands of another. However difficult that may be to do, Peter's verbiage is very clear. We are to obey, we are to submit, we are to heed what they would say in their position of authority. It means to obey them. And anyone that tries to say otherwise is going to have a difficult time navigating what Peter says just a few verses later when he uses the same Greek word in 1 Peter chapter 3, talking about wives and submitting to their husbands. He says, For this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. There's the word again. As Sarah obeyed Abraham... There's the word again. He's using the same Greek word to communicate submission and obedience, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So I take Peter's verbiage here, 
to submit or to be subject to to what he says. It means to submit. It means to obey. Yet this submission is for the Lord's sake. It's for the Lord's sake. And within the Roman culture, the context that this is written in, the emperor or Caesar would have been considered something of deity, and the descendants that came from him would have been considered from the gods. If you were to find a coin within this time, it would have contained an inscription much like ours, whereas ours says, in God we trust, yet it swore allegiance to another. That Caesar Augustus, the son of the divine Augustus, who are claiming deity within this office, knowing that all political figures can at some point begin to elevate themselves and to feel as though uh, they're more or better than somebody else for that matter. It comes with the territory. Their ego begins to maybe get inflated, yet they are creatures, fallen creatures, sinful creatures, and pride-filled creatures as well. The same thing would happen to some young Jewish boys at the hand of a Babylonian dictator. Of course, I'm speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. In Daniel 2.20, who insisted that the Jewish people bow and serve an idol and bow to paganism. Yet Daniel and his friends refused to do this. Why? Because it went against everything that they believed and it went against them being subject to the Lord. They weren't ultimately subject to King Nebuchadnezzar. They were ultimately subject to give an account unto the Lord as well. And the same is true for us in Christ. The Lord that Peter speaks of here, it is for the Lord's sake. It is for Christ's sake. And that within the conversation of authority, in the conversation of authority here, there's a sense of hierarchy that begins to be discussed. There are governors, there are emperors, These are, in fact, human institutions. And then, above them, is the Lord. And Christian, you are to submit, Peter says, to these human institutions for the Lord's sake. It's not for their sake, it's for the Lord's sake. You are to submit to them, to these human institutions, to these inferior institutions for a higher institution. You are to give of yourself and submit to them because you will ultimately give an account unto the Lord. It's interesting, in the gospel, in Matthew chapter 22, a discussion comes to Jesus specifically about paying taxes. And the Pharisees begin to discuss and and scheme up a plan to trap Jesus to see if they can get a sense of divided loyalty within him. In Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 15, the Pharisees went to and plotted how they would entangle him in his words. And they sent the disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and do not care about anyone's opinion, but you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, says, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me a coin for the tax. And they brought him in denarius. And he says to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar. Caesar's on the coin. In God we trust. Caesar Augustus, descendant of divine Augustus. Who shall we serve then? Jesus says, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, And give to God the things that are God's. And therefore, they marveled at him, and they left in him and went away. What's Jesus' point? Jesus' point is namely that there are some things that belong to earthly institutions. And then there are also things that belong only to the Lord. And you give Caesar your goods and money. You give him your taxes, you give him your goods, you give him your money, you give him your worldly treasures. But by implication, that also means that you give the Lord your whole life. You give to these human institutions, but you cannot forsake God's institution because you are to submit for the Lord's sake. 
The same thing happens in the book of Acts as well. To say that we will submit, but we will not ultimately bow the knee to anyone but Christ. Same thing happened in the book of Acts. Peter and John get arrested. They, and for proclaiming the good news, they're threatened, threatened to be thrown in jail in Acts chapter 4. And now they're standing before those who could bring about earthly judgment and condemnation on them in Acts chapter 5. In verse 27, and when they had brought them, when they had brought, brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them and says, We strictly charged you, do not teach in the name, in this name, the name of Jesus. You have filled Jerusalem with your teachings, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand and his leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. We are witnesses of these things. So to the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter says, if you think what is right in the eyes of man, you be the judge. But we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and what we have heard. And Peter may say... I could submit, but I cannot bow the knee, and I cannot help but to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And the answer that I begin to ask, the question I begin to ask within this text is that, is Peter a hypocrite? Is Peter a hypocrite, namely telling us to submit when he didn't? Ultimately, no. And it's because our submission is ultimately for the Lord's sake. Yet I will also say that so much as we can, so much as we can, we should submit. Peter goes on to say that the design within authority is not necessarily a bad thing. Look at what he says in verse 14. Or to the governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. There's a little bit of ambiguity about whom him is referring to. Is it to the emperor or is it to the Lord? Contextually, it seems to be the emperor, but nonetheless, we know that from scripture that the Lord is sovereign over all leaders. Flip over to Romans chapter 13. I want you to see this within this text. It's, another, it's a good text in, in bringing uh, harmony within First Peter and showing how the text in the Bible unpacks our response to those in authority over us. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Let every person be subject, there it is again, to the governing authorities. Now watch what he says. For there is no authority except from God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For a ruler is not a terror to good conduct. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of those who in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, the avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. There is a responsibility as believers in Christ, both in 1 Peter and in the book of Romans, that we should have a, a natural posture to those that are in authority over us to be obedient, to be submissive to them, and to do what they've asked of us. And it's really one of heart and one of posture. The Christian response should not be to just buck and rebel to any authority. That is not what the scripture is commanding of us. And if that is our posture, I think the scripture would say we need to check our hearts. We need to see if there is pride welling up within us that is dangerous and is sinful. Our posture should not be one of just natural bucking and rebelling. It should be one, as Peter says, of submission and to obey. Because the reality is that the Lord is sovereign and he is in control. And the Lord is the Lord over our lives and he is the Lord over authority over all things. He is in control of all the authority that is over us. 
and that we should submit to those that are in authority so much as we can honor them for the Lord's sake and unto the Lord. Not only should we do it for the Lord's sake, but Peter continues and says, For this is the Lord's will. Verse 15. For this is the Lord's will, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The Lord ultimately wills kings, governors, emperors, and the like. God is sovereign. He governs and dictates the spots and spaces of all people as well. And I reference Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar as a way of showing their refusal to obey the, com- the direct command to worship him. But that does not mean that our posture should always be that of rebelling and disobedience. In the midst of the same context in the book of Jeremiah, I want you to turn there and see this. Jeremiah writes, in the same context, in the same way of King Nebuchadnezzar ruling and reigning over God's people, in Daniel, Daniel said, I cannot bow the knee. Yet God also gives his people a charge as well. Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. This letter was sent by the hands of Elishia, the son of Japheth, and Gamariah, excuse me, and the son of Hilkiah, who Zedekiah, that's a tongue twister there, all of those words together, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and it said this, This says the Lord of hosts, the the God of Israel, to whom all exiles I have sent into exile. From Jerusalem to Babylon. Don't miss what's happening within this text. God, in his providence, in his sovereignty, has sent his people into a foreign land under the leadership and authority of a pagan king. God did that. And he says that their response to that should be to, verse 5, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in the marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you, I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord On its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare as well. God sent his people into a land that was governed and ruled by a pagan king. And says, live there. Build houses, build your family, build your lives. Seek the good of the city where I have sent you. He comes down in verse 10. He says, when the 70 years are complete, I will come and I will fulfill my promises to you. And then that Jeremiah 29, 11 that we all love to sing and proclaim, I have plans for you, declares the Lord, plans of a hope and a future. But note the context that it's in. It's in the context of being willing to live a life under a pagan ruler and a pagan king who does not have the way of Yahweh in his mind. And God sends them there for his people to build lives and to build cities and to be the people in the midst, submitting, living under the authority of a pagan king. God didn't make a mistake when he sent them into that foreign land to serve under this pagan ruler. Instead, he is in control of it all and he has called his followers to live distinct lives among the nations. And to, may the nations see and be captivated by the life and Christian distinctiveness of his people that are living for 
the good of their neighbor that are seeking the prosperity of the city, that are loving and praying for those that are around them. They are to live and to see the city prosper and build. And that is Peter's point he is aiming to as well. Look at verse 15. For this is the will of God. What is the will of God? That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Emperors and governors are to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. But my people should be good. They should do good in their city. They should do good in their deeds and in their world. They should live honorable lives, verse 12, Peter says. They should live honorable lives among the Gentiles. The language that's being used here, to punish those who do evil, evildoers. Verse 14, and to pray those, praise those who do good, good doers. There's good doers and there's evil doers. And then Peter says, for this is the will of God for you, that you would be a good doer, that you would be one who does good, that you would bring honor and glory to the Lord, that you would put to silence by doing good and living in submission of those in authority over you, that you would muzzle the ignorance of those that are in darkness. When he says foolish people, he's not talking about the ignorance of their mental capacities. He's talking about their foolishness and the darkness that they have because of their sin, and they have not, and they know not Christ. And he says, you live as good people. You live as good people of the land that you may put to silence those who are living in darkness, silence those who are living in ignorance, and may your life be as beautiful and as compelling lives among them that they give honor to the Lord. Borrowing back from last week, that you live humbly, that you live with honor, that you live with God, you love God, you loved your neighbor, and quite honestly, you don't get too caught up in political affairs. And you don't get too concerned with the human institutions of this world. Because you know that ultimately, this is not your home. And that there is another city for you. But while you are here, Peter says, live for the Lord's sake. Live for the Lord's will. And it's to love God, to love your neighbor, and to live a life that is compelling so that no one would have really any ammunition to come against you. There's another interesting passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul says this. He says, But I urge you, brothers, do this more and more, and aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. It's almost like the Apostle Paul, and I believe Peter is kind of making this argument, or at least suggesting this thing as well, that Christians in many respects are kind of just to fly below the radar as best as you can. And it's not because you don't have a voice, but it's because ultimately fulfilling God's commands on your life doesn't require that you have any notoriety, doesn't require that you make a name for yourself. Following the Lord's commands, you can do that by living a simple, quiet life and loving God and loving your neighbor. And you can live a distinct life by living quietly. That you honor God, that you honor your neighbor, and in doing that, you put to silence their arguments against you. For this is the will of God, Peter says, that you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That we should seek to do good instead of seek to rebel. That the will of God for you is that you would do good, Christian. That your concern would be that of your actions would be compelling to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then in an increasing hostile society where threats will continue to come against Christianity... And defying authority and resisting the power of authority, revol revolting, resulting, it will not earn any favors or make any friends. It will only allow and speed Christian persecution in our world. You've already seen uh, enough that in, in one day, in one day you will be called to obey Christ more than the emperor. 
And in that day, when you say, I cannot bow the knee to a worldly institution, that will ultimately be the final straw. And Peter knows, and I think Paul knows this as well, you don't need to resist and rebel all the way long till you get to that point. Because there's going to come a point, there is going to come a breaking point where you have to say, I cannot obey you in that. And that worldly institution will not like it. And there will likely be consequences, there will likely be things that come against you, but Peter argues that you should live a good life. You should seek to do good. Don't just try to rub people the wrong way. Don't just try to buck and be a, a resistor to authority just to make a case in point. That's, what point are you making? Peter says, no, seek to live lives that are honorable. And even doing that, Christian, look at verse 14. Even living good lives and keeping in good conduct among the Gentiles, they're still going to speak against you as evildoers. Christian, I promise you, you will not have to come up with a lot for accusations to be hurled at you. Even living honorable lives will do that. Peter says, they're going to bring about accusations and speak evil against you. Articles being written right now, even within our country, that Christianity is perhaps dangerous for society and is harmful for society because it's too narrow-minded or closed-minded. And we're being unwilling to compromise on the Scripture. Rest assured, the day will continue to increase where we cannot bow the knee. Following the Lord and in following Him will ultimately lead. It will continue to that end it will ultimately lead to suffering and persecution. And resisting and rebelling isn't helping matters along the way. Not that we fear that, but we seek to live quiet lives. We seek to honor the Lord. We seek the prosperity of our city and our land. We seek to do good. We don't seek to rebel against authority, but one day that authority will not like that we will not bow the knee. Scripture tells us that. History tells us that as well. There are examples of Christians, so to speak, bringing the fight and being in the wrong. You see this within the Crusades and bringing about opposition. They went looking for a fight, and it was a political campaign. But yet... There are instances where people who claim to know Christ and claim to believe in Him will do ungodly things in the name of Christ and ultimately misrepresent Christ. It was Pope Urban II that made the first call for the Crusades, and his call was this. He promised forgiveness and pardon for those who went and took back the Holy Land from the Muslims. A political campaign. He sought to make a name for Christianity and himself. He lived for this kingdom in that, and he was in the wrong. Yet there are also those who bear the name of Christ, who seek to honor him, who seek to give him allegiance and to live according to his word, and they don't want to resist authority. They want to obey us so much as they can. Yet time and time again throughout history, they were persecuted for their allegiance to Christ. That's all it's going to take, Christian. It's going to take your allegiance to Christ, finally saying, for the Lord's sake, I cannot obey human institutions. It happened in Rome in AD 64, where Nero, more than likely history would tell us, probably started a fire. And when he was questioned about it, blamed Christians and started a statewide, maybe emperor-wide persecution for believers in Christ not because they defied authority, but because somebody was looking to get out of trouble and he put the blame on somebody else who was seeking to do good in society. It happened in the 16th and 17th century with Puritans. Many of us are here in this room because of Christian persecution, of looking for a land to flee to so that they could be free to express and worship the Lord freely. And the Church of England in the 16th, 17th, were threatening those who worship the Lord as they saw fit 
It's because of persecution. Many of us are here, and it will continue to come. From Marxism and communism, that's it, speaking an anti-gospel, and they want a form of Christianity that conforms to their form of Christianity. And when Christians rebel and say no, you have underground churches in places like China. You saw it in Romania as well in the 1950s and the 1960s. History tells us that those who seek to live a godly life, the scripture tells us, you seek to live a godly life and you will be persecuted for it. The book of Revelation, all of it climaxing, working towards, going towards this end, those who refuse to worship the beast, that is those who refuse to bow the knee, were put to death and persecuted for it. Christian, I promise you, your allegiance to Christ will eventually be enough defiance to those in authority over you to do the exact opposite of what they were assumed to be doing in the first place. And instead of doing good to those who do good and evil to those who do evil, in that moment, they will bring evil against those who are only seeking to do good. And Peter says, that's why you should seek to live a good life and an honorable life. And so you're probably asking the question much like I was, so what do I do? Do I lay down without a fight? Or do I engage to the end of patriotism? And I think Peter's suggestion would be, I don't know that you should measure your success or failures in terms of engagement, but in terms of living for God and doing good to others. It's not about engagement as much as it's about living and doing good. For this is the will of God for you, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Then he says, live. What does he mean? He just said, submit. Now he's saying, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Christian, your aim, your measure in life should be that of doing good, ultimately the good of another and a coming kingdom. This is the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's interesting that the book of Acts, chapter 10, says this, that he was, went out into the land and he did good in all places that he went, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This is the example of our Lord. It's the culmination of what Peter is aiming towards here. It says, if you do good, if you continue to do good, you will follow in the footsteps of your Savior as well. Look at 1 Peter, just a few verses later, where he's building to in all of this discussion. He says, but when you do good, and suffer for it. In other words, it is coming, Christian. If you just do good, it's coming. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And he who bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, by his wounds you have been healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus, living only for good, was persecuted, hated, and killed. All he ever did was live good. He lived for the love of his Lord and for the good of his neighbor. He lifted up the broken and oppressed. He said, render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God. He lived the life that you couldn't, never defying those in authority. And eventually, those whom he honored and loved and did good to sought him out to kill him, to crucify him. And it's interesting, the scene in the garden when the soldier comes to take Jesus away. And there he is in the garden, and it's Peter of all people that pulls the sword and begins to try to fight back. And Peter says, or the Lord says, don't fight. He says, put your sword down. Don't cling to your sword, Peter. Cling to your Savior. And when the fight comes, Christian, and it will come, you need to cling to Jesus and you need to cling to your Savior more than you cling to some type of worldly sword to fight back 
in that moment. We cling to Jesus. And I'm praying. I'm very concerned. Yes, things that are happening in our land, even now, if you saw even on the news in California, a prominent pastor in California, John MacArthur, made a statement that says we will not continue not meeting in worship anymore. And they're defying the governor's orders in California. The governor suspended worship services for indefinitely. And John MacArthur and his church and his elders decided we can't do that. And the last that I saw, the local officials were threatening to shut down the power to the church. It's interesting. It's interesting what is happening in our land, in Nevada, where churches are told that they can't gather when casinos can open with five and 600 people in them. But churches are limited to 50 people. It's concerning what's going on. And I did not think or expect, and maybe it's not happening within our country, but Christian, I also knew that one day it would begin to come. And it may be sooner than I thought. But these are the types of things that will begin to push the envelope, that will push religious persecution to the forefront. And I promise you, I promise you, you will not have to do much. What do you do? What's, what's, what's the solution when the church feels threat or when the church feels slander, when the church feels they're speaking against us as evildoers in society? Christianity being deemed as hate speech and dangerous in the world. How do you combat that? Peter would combat it in this way. Do good, Christian. Continue to do good. Love the Lord. Love your neighbor. Advance the kingdom. Honor everyone. Continue to do good. I close with this in John 15. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love than no one is this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whenever... Whatever you ask in my Father's name, he will give to you. These things I command to you so that you will love one another. We tend to measure societal and worldly success on the basis of political parties. Who's in office, who's not in office, who's calling the shots, as if what we're going to do somehow loses favorability within society. We live in a nation that honestly we don't know what it's like not to have religious liberties. Our nation was built upon that. It was guided by those principles of religious liberty. But folks, the Lord's commands don't hang as dependent upon the laws of man. We must fulfill God's law to us. We don't need political opportunity or a rite of passage to accomplish what the Lord is asking for us. It doesn't matter who's in office or who's not in office. It matters how the Lord has called you to live, namely to love the Lord, to love your neighbor, and to seek the good of those around you. And that's exactly what Jesus did as well. He sought to love his neighbor, not by ascending to a worldly throne, but by laying his life down. He loved us. He loved you, even to his own death, seeking to do you good. He sought your good in that moment. He was aiming for your good and your reconciliation, your greatest need. Jesus was seeking that. And it wasn't by giving you a political favor or political goods or a political pardon. Jesus was securing for you instead an eternal pardon. That by repentance and faith in Christ and his life, death, and resurrection, you can be reconciled to God. So what would you do that today? What hinders you from placing your faith in Christ? And Christian, know that God is inviting us to that end as well, to be a part of seeking the good of others and loving those around us by loving God, loving our neighbors, and seeking good.
And Jesus was not unaware of the price that would come with this. He continues in verse 18. If the world hates you. Right after he said this about you're to love people. Jesus knows what comes when you love people well. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me first before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would have loved you as its own because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the words that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This world is evil. This world will continually turn towards evil because this world knows not the Father. But Christian, you do know the Father. And if you do, Peter says, submit for the Lord's sake and for the Lord's will and live for the good of others. Let's pray. Well, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grace Point Henderson podcast. If you would like more information about Grace Point Church, go to gracepointhenderson.com, or you can search us on Facebook by searching Grace Point Church Henderson. And if you live in the Henderson, Kentucky area, we invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 1015 a.m. For all of our listeners, be sure to click the subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode of the Grace Point Henderson podcast.